if, if you don't know who I am, I am Gus and I, I am employed by Oasis Church. <laughs> and uh, it's my privilege to speak today. We're in a series in Oasis uh, in the Psalms called Songs for the Journey Part 2. Uh, part 2 because we did Part 1 a few years ago now. Uh, and we're, we are looking at four or five Psalms in this series. Uh, it's called Songs for the Journey because the Psalms are songs. And they are relevant for whatever journey in life we are on. And all the Psalms have got different contexts that they were uh, written in in order to help the writer of the Psalm and the people who are going to sing them or listen to them have some connection with their situation and God at that particular moment that the, uh, the Psalm was written. So that's why it's called Songs for the Journey. We've been going through a number of different Psalms. T- today's Psalm is Psalm 46 which is a song of hope. It's the final one in the series, Psalm 46, a psalm of hope. And just before Rod and the band perform it to us, because over the weeks we have got our creative uh, writers and musicians to perform the psalms as songs, not just to speak them out. So Rod and the band are going to do that in a minute. Just before they do, I thought it's useful again to put a little bit of context on this psalm so that when they perform it, we know what the psalmist that wrote this psalm was writing or singing into. And so Psalm 46 is a psalm that's written on the back of an impending massive crisis. An impending massive crisis. The the psalm comes up behind me and you'll see some verses in yellow in the psalm. We'll see the whole psalm in a minute in white when Rod sings it. But uh, it's it's an impending crisis centred around the city of Jerusalem, which was God's holy city at the time this psalm was written. Verse 4 says, the holy place where the most high dwells, that's Jerusalem. And it was probably a crisis centred on the impending overthrow of that city. People were coming to take it over. There was a battle waiting to happen. Verse 5 says this, God will help her at break of day. And break of day was the time when an impending attack, if it was going to happen, was going to happen at break of day. So the backdrop to this psalm is war, is a battle. It's overthrow. And that's an unsettling crisis to be in. Imagine if our city of Birmingham was facing the impending battle that was looming and overthrow was going to be coming. So that's the backdrop and the fact that the the crisis was there at all is one thing but it was a real pressing and pressure filled crisis. It was a really full on crisis and we know that because in verses 2 and 3 we've got the psalmist using some really powerful imagery to try and communicate how big this problem was. We've got the earth giving way and the mountains falling into the heart of the surging sea. And what he's trying to do is say the things that are the most certain things in life, the most solid things in life, the most sure things in life, the things that are immovable in life, like the earth itself, like mountains, the potential of those crumbling and falling and melting is trying to paint a picture of how massive this crisis is. The crisis is looming large and boy, is it large. And so, as we go into the content of this psalm, we almost need to feel the fear of the threat that this psalmist was writing into as he wrote into it. And so, as uh, Rod and the band perform the song, let's remember that, and then I'll come back in a minute, and we'll take it on from there.
God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way and the mountains fall. Shield with fire. He burns the shield with fire. 
shatters the spear, he burns the shield with fire, he burns the shield with fire, he makes war cease to the ends of the earth, he breaks the bow and shatters the spear, he burns the shield with fire, he burns the shield with fire, he burns the shield with fire, he burns with fire refrain that Rod and the band were singing kind of shapes the psalm. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That was a, that was a refrain that was sung originally in the psalm. It was a congregational psalm where the worship leaders sung, sang some of it and then the congregation joined in and sang that bit back. So it's a together thing. So them singing it like that is a, a right way of singing it. Original to the whenever it's written all those years ago. And it, it's a song of hope under this backdrop, as I mentioned, of crisis. And therefore it's a song that has relevance for us today because there's always some kind of a crisis or another in our world going on today, isn't there? There's crisis rife in every situation, conversation, television programme that we watch. I wrote down a few crisis points, a kind of a city-wide or nationwide or worldwide level. You've got crisis in the health service, crisis in education, crisis in the banking and finance sector, crisis as the wide dividends between rich and poor, crisis in division in post-Brexit Britain, crisis in refugee housing and support both in the UK and overseas, crisis on the war on terror, crisis in world nations, Syria, Iraq, Iran, North Korea, Russia, Ukraine, United States of America, Russia, uh, crisis with Ebola, uh, crisis with swine flu when it appears, crisis with foot and mouth when that arrives in the UK, crisis as the snow, ca the snow caps melt, crisis as the ozone layer disintegrates, crisis as natural fuels run out. That's a lot of crisis. And, and all that crisis is real, because you keep on hearing about it all the time in life. And if we're not careful, it can do your head in 
and really get you down. This is a song of hope, a psalm of hope on the backdrop of crisis. But crisis isn't just necessarily out there crisis, although that's tangible and real and hurtful and shakes you. We also have personal crisis, don't we, in our lives. And I think God has already spoken to us this morning about trying to strip us back a little bit in order to recognise that there's probably personal crisis going on in our worlds right now and some of us might be hiding from what it's doing to us. And he wants to strip the wall back, knock the wall down and just say, just be real before me. You might be carrying a crisis in your world and there's all sorts of personal crises. Here's a few. Crisis of weeks, months, years of unemployment. You just can't get a job and you're absolutely hoping, wishing that you had one. Weeks, months, years of addiction. Struggling with addiction, you can't break free, whatever it is. Weeks, months, years of being single and so wishing that you were married. Just dreaming of a partner and it's never quite happened for you. Personal crisis for you. Then on the flip side, weeks, months, years of being in a dysfunctional relationship, a partnership and marriage where you're actually wishing that you weren't together anymore, dreaming to be single. Weeks, months, years of suffering after a massive breakup from a horrible divorce because you broke out of what relationship you were in because of the crisis that you were under. You might have weeks, months, years of longing to have children and you just can't. Or you might have weeks, months and years of having had children and wishing you never had because of everything they're, right, they're doing right now. You might have weeks, months, years of hating yourself just because you do hate yourself or hating yourself because some th- some, somebody did something to you one time and you can never forgive and forget and it's just sh- framed the whole of your life. Hating yourself because you did something once that you can't forgive yourself for. You might have weeks, months, years of feeling unaccepted, misunderstood, unloved because of your sexual orientation personal crisis that you or I can carry in our worlds and it can take us down it can really do us in it's part of the human condition it's part of the human existence and it can get our heads right down and make us say what's the point of living even when crisis comes this is a psalm of hope in the backdrop of crisis And you might have a crisis in your life today, and if you have, God wants to meet you in your crisis. He wants to lift you out of whatever crisis you are in. Strip back the wall of your defense system, whatever it is. Take whatever it is that you're holding close to your heart that you can't let go of and exchange it for hope in God. That's what God wants to do this morning. God is able. It's not a song of crisis, it's a song of hope. It's a song of hope that God is able to do anything, anytime, anyplace, anywhere. Verse 6, nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. When God speaks, things happen. God changes things. And that's the heart of this psalm. Not crisis, although that's the backdrop, hope in God. The authority of God, the sovereignty of God, the power of God, the proclamation of God. That is the essence of what is in this psalm. When we read this psalm, when we sing this psalm, when we hear this psalm being sung, that is what God wants us to catch, that he is God and can be God and can do things that only God can do even when we can't. And that is extremely good news for us because it means that we have 
confidence in God to always do something, somehow, somewhere, to rescue us from whatever crisis we are in. And that's got to be good news, which is why that refrain, the Lord Almighty is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress, holds us. We have God, he is our rock, he is with us, his presence is wonderful, and as a fortress, he can save us from anything. We are therefore never without hope, even though there is the onslaught of war a-coming. And that's exciting, and that's encouraging. The question is, though, is it true? I can try and encourage us from those brief words, but is it true? Do we know God is full of authority and sovereignty and power and might and can do anything, anytime, anyplace, anywhere to rescue us from whatever crisis we are in? Do we really know that? How do we know that's true? And the answer to that question is quite simple. The Bible tells us that it's true, and the Bible shows us that it's true as well. The Bible tells us that it's true, and the Bible shows us that it's true. I want to, to show us how the Bible tells us, and then show us how the Bible shows us, and then hopefully raise a bit of faith that whatever context we are in, God can rescue us from it, however hard and pressing and pressure-filled it might be. And then we're going to come to the end at, at looking at what he does when he does do that, and then right at the end, we're going to look at what happens when it, he doesn't do it. When God in his power and his might, his authority and his sovereignty doesn't step in. What do we do then? So that's where we're going. I'm excited. I know you are. So let's look at what the Bible tells us about the sovereignty, the authority, the power of God. This is just the Bible doing what it does. is sharing something of the character of God. Here are some verses. Genesis 1, verse 1. The first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. Such a familiar verse, but just to catch you up in it for a moment, God created this planet on which we live. Everything that we see, everything that we enjoy, everything that we wow at, the valleys, the hills, the seas, the mountains, everything that's out there that's massive and amazing on this planet, God created. He did it. Pooh, there it is. God created everything that we can't see, all the microscopic stuff, all the silly little insects, all the stuff under the water that exists that we don't know about that's there. God created it. God created all the things under the physical earth itself, all the molten lava and hot stuff and rocks and all the rest of that. God created it. God created all the rules and regulations, all the mathematics, the physics, the science that defines everything that he created as well. God created it. God created not just this planet and everything that goes with it. He created the heavens and the earth. The heavens, all the up there stuff, the skies, the stars, the atmospheres, the galaxies that go on and on and on and on. God created it. Is that a God who is powerful and able? Yes, it is. In the beginning, God created. Genesis 1 verse 1. Job 38, 4 to 11. God is having a conversation with Job about little Job and big God, and he kind of reiterates this. He says in verse 4, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the, room, from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. God created some amazing stuff. That's a God of power, authority, and sovereignty. 
Exodus 15:11, who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness. Awesome in glory. Working wonders. That is our God. 1 Samuel 2, verse 2. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. No one who is rock-like like God. He is the only one on whom we can stand when everything comes and hits and knocks us over God is the only one we can stand on. Nothing else and no one else. That's the God of power and might. What about the Son of God, Jesus? If Jesus was the Son of God, you'd expect him to be one of sovereignty, authority, power and might when he was present here on planet Earth. Because Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So what can we see of Jesus within this context? Here's some things that Jesus said about himself. They're all familiar, hugely familiar. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the true vine. In other words, I satisfy hunger. I bring crystal clear clarity to everything. I bring safety and comfort to everything. I bring trustworthy leadership to everything. I give natural life and spiritual life and eternal life. I bring direction. I bring honesty. I bring integrity. I am the source of all peace and all wholeness. Isn't that the God of authority and sovereignty, power and might? That's Jesus saying, I can do things that no one else can do. Listen up, watch up, look up. Here I am. Revelation 1 verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The response to that is Revelation 4 verse 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. Revelation 15 3 4, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and bow before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. God of power, God of authority, God of sovereignty, God of might, almighty God. Psalm 46 verse 10, be still. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Psalm 46 verse 10 says, stop. Listen up, be quiet, be still, I am God. That's what Psalm 46 verse 10 says. It's not so much an arm round the shoulder, whisper in the ear, in the ear be still and know that I am God. It's not so much that, it's more a command for attention. Be still, you be still and watch because I am God. Be still, you know it, I am am God. Which is why Psalm 46 verse 10 goes on to say, I will be exalted among the nations. Yes, I will. And I will be exalted in the earth. Yes, I will. Because I am a God of power, authority, sovereignty, and might. Yes, I will. And that verse is true because God has been over the centuries. He has been exalted amongst the nations and he is exalted in the earth and he continues to be even today as we give him the praise and glory that's due his name. This is God. This is the Bible telling us about the awesome power of God. That on its own should do us good. 
But the Bible doesn't tell us, it shows us as well about the awesome power of God. Three examples. Number one, the parting of the Red Sea. This is my reading plan coming into play here. You know I'm reading the Bible in a year, and so I'm reading all the, all the early stuff. I'm in the, uh, the Exodus, uh, God taking the people of Israel out from the bondage of slavery of Egypt. We know the story. Uh, Moses comes along with Aaron. A whole lot of plagues are sent on the people of Egypt in order to get their attention so that Pharaoh will release them to go. It takes a few lots of nasty stuff before he's willing to do that, but eventually he lets them go um, and sends the Israelites off. So we've got this picture of the Israelites heading away from Egypt, and 15, five, five, uh, verse, chapter 14, verse 5 to 14 says this, When the king of Egypt was told that the people have fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've, left the, we've let the Israelites go. We've lost their services. So he, made his, so he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt. That's a lot of chariots. With officers over all of them, people that knew what they were doing. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly because God had finally released them. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, a very large army, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi Hahiroth. Been practicing that. Opposite <laughs> Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. This is a crisis point for the Israelites. Set free by God, charging out from Egypt, and now an absolutely massive army, full of rage and anger, are roaring after them. This is a crisis, isn't it? A massive crisis. And so, oh, they were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there are no graves in Egypt that you brought us out of the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone and let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Be still. You be still. And you watch what I'm going to do. Because you are hemmed in with a huge Egyptian army coming to get you and the sea in front of you. And there is nowhere to go. And you are in crisis and you are in panic. But the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God is with us. God can save us. God can do it. God can do a miracle out of nothing just like that. And he's going to do it in this particular context. And of course, he did. That's one example of the Bible showing us of the sovereignty, authority, power and might of God. Second, this is Jesus this time. Jesus drives out an evil spirit. Mark 1, 21 to 26. They went to Capernaum and when the, the Sabbath came... Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the evil spirit shook the man violently and it came out of him with a shriek. I don't know what your theology is on being possessed by an evil spirit. The writer of Mark, Mark, was happy to describe this man as being possessed by an evil spirit. And it was certainly the case in Jesus' day that he came across many people who seemed to do some outrageously harmful things to themselves, like throwing themselves in a fire and things like that, and not being in control of their actions and not being in control of their words. And when they encountered Jesus to kind of give him abuse for who he was, the Son of God. People there at the time observed that there was something dark and menacing in these people, that it wasn't necessarily just mental illness. There was something spiritual going on that was dark and menacing. And so the gospel writers described that as demon possession, being possessed by a demon. This man's life was in obvious crisis because he couldn't control what he said or what he did. And yet Jesus speaks to the man, to the evil, to the crisis that is in that man, and he just said that, be quiet. You be quiet. You be still, come out of the man. It's an exercising of the authority of God over that situation, the power and might and the sovereignty of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That is what God can do in those situations. A crisis, but calm comes through it. And then finally, Jesus calming the storm, Mark 4, 35 to 39, familiar story. Verse 35, that that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go across to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were other boats with him. Furious squall came up and the the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern of the boat sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And then the wind and the waves died down and it was completely calm. Jesus, with power and authority and sovereignty, speaking quiet and calm over creation. And it obeyed. This is God doing what God can do. Stepping in, miraculously stepping in, in crisis when no one else can do anything else. That is what God can do. He can do that in our context as well. What happens when God does step in? What happens when God does step in and change things? I'm going to answer that question. And then I'm going to answer the question, what happens when God doesn't step in and change things? Which might be irrelevant to some of us here today. So firstly, what happens when God steps in and changes things? The answer to that question is really easy. It's an easy answer. It's peace comes. The peace of God arrives when God steps in. When he caused the sea to part and the Israelites to to be rescued through it and then the sea to come over again, there the Israelites were free and safe on one side of the sea and the Egyptians, as he said, had completely disappeared in the sea. The picture is one of calm, a calm, peaceful sea after the uproar of what was going on, after the impending closeness of the crisis. Peace comes. When Jesus rescued the evil, the demon-possessed man, normality came for that man, peace came for that man. In other examples in the Bible, you find uh, uh, demon-possessed people sitting quietly or eating or just wearing clothes and being in their right mind. Peace comes. 
And when Jesus commanded the storm to be still, peace came. The storm dissipated. The whole of the Sea of Galilee, for all the people that were on it on that day, became calm. Peace came for all in that moment. When God steps in, peace comes. Psalm 46 verse 9 says, He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. The goal of our hope in God is that he brings peace. He brings peace, which is why Jesus, when he was resurrected from the dead, and we are a resurrection people, said what to his disciples when he first met them in that room? Peace be with you. That is the goal of God bringing comfort in chaos, comfort in crisis. The hope that we have is the peace of God. And, that we, and that's what we can look forward to when God steps in and changes things in only the way that he can. That's an easy one. What happens when God doesn't step in and change things? And this is the challenge that perhaps many of us are in, as I'll uh, allude to right at the end. It's a challenge that Janie and me and my family have been in over the last year, 18 months, because we, like many of you, have been challenging uh, been challenged by the arrival of cancer and all that that means in terms of what your life suddenly looks like. And we've been praying, as I'm sure many of you have, not just for us, but for the context that you are in, in similar situations. And sometimes you pray and you call out and you're waiting for God to do something and you know he's majestic and magnificent, but nothing happens. There is real and present crisis in your world, in my world. And theology says that God can step in because he's a God of power, sovereignty and might. And the Bible shows us that it's true because we can read those examples and build faith from them, but still God doesn't do anything. What happens then? What do we do then when God doesn't step in? Do we just pretend that everything's fine or do we do anything that has meaning? Well, the first thing that we do is we apply last week's message. Last week's message for those of us that weren't here was a song of pain, a psalm of pain. And Adrian, if you remember, brought to us a simple illustration that he said none of us would forget, and it's true. CPR was his little word to us last week. C, cry out to God. Cry out to God. P, plea with God for change. R, rest in the comfort of God. That's when we do. We're in a crisis, and nothing's changing. So there's, that, there's the pain that we're holding that's absolutely real and present, and we don't pretend it's not there. So we have that. We do the song of pain stuff, but... We don't run out of hope because we still have hope in a God that can bring peace, a miraculous, sovereign, sovereign, authoritative, powerful God. We have a God who we know that says, just be still, be quiet, and know that I'm God. And that, in essence, is what we do do when we are in a crisis and nothing's happening. We hold tight. We be still. We hold on God's instruction to us, which is, all right, you're in what you're in, do nothing and wait for me. So we're waiting for God, but what do we do in our waiting? Is it passive waiting, which is I'll just wait there and take the blast, or is there anything we can do that's active in our waiting for God, in our being still and knowing that he's God? And I think there are four things that we can do. And those four things are these. Be faithful in obedience, be honest in relationships and prayer, be committed to honouring God and be willing to identify with Christ in your crisis, in your pain, in your suffering. Very quickly, faithful in obedience. John 8.31 says this, If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Whatever's happening in your life, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, exciting, hold to my teaching. Then you are really my disciples. 
C.S. Lewis says it probably better than I do. He wrote uh, Screw Tape Letters in 1942. You'll know that it's a uh, classic work of Christian apologetics and inspiration. And it's a, it's a book designed to, to, to work out what it's like to be tempted. So you've got this guy called Screwtape who's trying to teach a tempter called Wormwood how to get believers to lose their faith, for want of a better expression. And one of the quotes in the book says this, Our cause is never more in danger, Wormwood, so this is Screwtape talking to Wormwood, than when a human, no longer desiring, because at the end of their wits, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy, which is God's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished. There is no presence of God in our lives because we're at wit's end. And asks why he's been forsaken. And yet still, that believer obeys. That is one of the things we can do when nothing's happening. Head down, head up, head down, head up, head down, head up. I'm still obeying the word of God in my life. I'm not going to be deterred from it. That's the first thing we can do. Second thing, and it's similar to CPR, to be honest, is be honest in relationships and prayer. Be honest in relationships in prayer. There's no point pretending that when our backs are against the wall, that they're not against the wall and we're not feeling it. That's pointless. That's just Christian pretense. Let's be honest in our relationships, in our prayer. Let's be crying out to God. Let's be pleading to God. Let's be saying, Lord, I'm at my wit's end and I need you. There's nothing wrong with that prayer. And there's nothing wrong with saying to people, I'm really struggling with where I'm at. And there's nothing wrong with asking people and God to help. God can help. People can help. We've asked many of you guys in our year of trouble to help. And years of trouble, I should say, because it wasn't just last year. And you've helped. Thank you very much. But that's, you can do that as well with the people that you have in your life. So... Be honest in relationships and prayer. Third thing, be committed to honouring God. What does that mean? Know that God is God. That the, the, the word of God is true. That what I've read out is true. All those things about the power, the authority, the sovereignty of God is true. Hold to it. Honour God in it. Keep giving him the accolade that he deserves. He's worthy of our praise because he doesn't change even though it looks like he's not doing anything. He is still able to do it. He is a God who is to be honoured. And then the fourth one, be willing to identify with Christ. If you're in a crisis where you feel as though the world is going to end for you at any moment, it's that bad. The simple truth is, Jesus knows how you feel. Jesus knows how you feel. Why? Because he is the master of all crises. He faced the crises of the cross, didn't he? And we know what it looked like for him when he contemplated that crisis in the Garden of Gethsemane. He fell on his knees, he called out to his father, a CPR moment, and he said, take this cup away from me, I can't do this. And yet God said, no, I'm not going to take it away from you, you're going to carry on through it. God, in a way, was silent at that moment. He kept saying, not your will, but mine, Lord. Not your will, but mine. Take it away from me. God didn't say, okay, I'll take it away from you. He just remained silent. God of power, God of authority, God of might didn't give Jesus the get out of course. Of course he wasn't going to give him the get out of course because it was God's plan and the cross was Jesus' passion. He wouldn't actually have wanted it either. But this is a moment of massive pressure for Jesus and yet he still held firm. There was no last minute miraculous rescue. And the thing is, in our suffering, in our pain, in our crises, we have to always hold to that truth that Jesus does know how we feel. We are not alone in our suffering. 
He knows. He's the only God that can suffer alongside us because he knows what it's like to suffer, which is why he is a God of such great comfort, which is why the rest in CPR has its place. But you know what? Even if still no miraculous change comes for you, even if the comfort isn't enough for you, even if you're about to end this world with your crises pressing in, you think, I've had it, I can't take it anymore, life's going to end, the world is nigh, end of story. Do you know what? The best is still yet to come. The best is still yet to come. The cross, the crisis of the cross was so, so imperative for God and man that he had to die on the cross, die for the sins of the whole world, carry the atrocity of sin on his back, so that he could open the door to eternal relationship with God himself. Death is not the end. And in our Christian existence, so often we get a bit spooked by it, because we think, surely I'm not going to die, surely this is not the end. But it might be the end. And if it is the end, hooray! That's good news. It's not, oh no, it's excellent news. I'm going to go and be with the Father. Which is why Paul says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. This is good news. Dying is good news. It is not the end of the story. This is the greater hope that we have. This is the greater hope that Psalm 46 itself even points to. Because it points to a city where the river whose streams make glad the city of God. And that city, in terms of the context of the Psalm 46, is... Jerusalem, as I already alluded to, but there was no river in Jerusalem. There is no river in Jerusalem. But there is a river in the heavenly city that's talked about in Revelation 22. And it's called the river of the water of life that runs right through the heart of that heavenly city. Why? Because God's presence is there and Jesus is, is waiting to welcome us into it. Death is not the end of life. It's the beginning of new life where everything else falls away. No mourning, no crying. No despair, no crisis, no anything dodgy or bad or indifferent or ugly. It's just glory and the presence of God. So even if you're in a crisis and your back's against the wall and the Egyptians, figuratively speaking, are coming and nothing happens and you know God can do something but he's just not doing anything and you're praying that God will do something and he's just not doing anything and you're thinking there is no God but you're holding to him you think I'm going to obey him, I'm going to keep praying to him, I'm going to keep honouring him. Still God does nothing and all of a sudden, bang, that's the end. You're with God, with Jesus, in the afterlife. So it's good news. We can still hold, hold firm to everything, thinking, I'm still going, God is good, and everything's okay. I'll close with this. Hitting you with theology. God is powerful, God is sovereign, God is able, God is authoritative, he's the almighty God. Yes, he is. He can break into any situation. He is a God of hope, not of crisis. How do we know? Bible tells us so. Bible shows us so. What happens when God does break in? Peace comes, and oh, what unbelievable peace. And he can do that in many different ways. What happens when he doesn't break in? Those four things that I've just given us. We can be faithful in obedience, honest in relationships and prayer, committed to honouring God, willing to identify with Christ. Come back to our context. And I know many of you have got different contexts as well. We've been on a journey over the last 18 months of pain and suffering and crisis and difficulty, and many of you know that we have. And in it, we have resolved to be faithful in obedience to God, to keep on serving Jesus as best we can through it. Because I believe the theology of what the Bible says and what the Bible shows and the reality of 
a relationship with God that is ongoing. We've carried on being faithful in obedience. We've carried on being honest in relationships and prayer, which has meant at times that sometimes we cry out to God and we say, God, we keep praying for healing and nothing seems to be happening. And we have the operations, we have the medical expertise, and that has its place in terms of recovery, but nothing seems to be happening. And there's still a threat over Janie's life of the cancer taking her away, as it, as it is with, with Vince, as it is with Andy Hogman in our church, as it is with others that we have in this church. It's not just all about us. We're keeping being honest in relationships, and we're keeping being honest in prayer. And that's just God gets us all, gets the whole story, not just Christian-y type prayers. Oh, God, you're good. Hallelujah. Praise you for this suffering. It's, man, this is really hard, but we're going to keep going. We've been careful to keep honouring God. I will not deter, Janie will not deter from the sovereign authoritative power of God. He is God. He is the one who created the heavens and the earth. He can do anything, anytime, anyplace, anywhere. That is not pretense. It is real. It is true. We've done that in our lives and many of you do it in your lives when you hit crisis as well. And there is a bizarre honour in being able to identify with Jesus in suffering. Now, Man, that's easy for me to say because I'm not the one walking with cancer and operations and surgeons and pain and all that kind of stuff. And for those of you that do, honour to you. But Janie, Vince, others, I'll just identify with Christ in my suffering because Christ suffered and he knows how I feel. He is my comfort and my support. And honour and respect to those of you that do that. I've done it in my own way. Suffering is a different way as a husband of a wife that's going through it. But I will identify with Christ in his sufferings. It's a way, if you like, of having Christian maturity stamped on your breastplate. It's almost an honour that God says, I'm willing to allow the suffering to go there because I know they won't fall. And I think, thank you, Jesus, I'll take it. If my light can shine for you and show others how good you are. But even if that doesn't happen, death is still okay. And in our family, we have been extremely light and honest and open about the reality of death that might come to Janie. And she's fine with me saying that in a public context. Janie still might die. Vince still might die. Others of you, we don't know when God's got our time up, we might die. But when that happens, that is good news. And we've laughed about the potential of her funeral coming. And we've laughed about inviting people so that we can get more people there. And we've laughed about the opportunity of sharing the gospel good news at Janie's funeral so that more people than ever can hear how good he is. Now I'm not putting Janie in a coffin, don't hear that oh no no no, we're not saying bring it on God, come on don't hear that but what you must hear is reality, that there is a crisis in our life that's been present, it feels less present right now just because the doctors are slightly calmer But there is a reality in our life. There's probably realities in your life as well. And the reality has been the real and present danger of death. But we haven't run away from it. We've embraced the good news of the kingdom, which is there is a heavenly city that we will all be in where the presence of God dwells. And that is the greater hope that we don't just sing of, but the Psalm 46 sings of as well. So it's a a psalm of hope for the future. It's a psalm of hope in the sovereignty and authority and power of God. And it's a psalm that wherever context we're in today, with all the crisis that is pressing in, God can and God will. The question is, are we, re- are we willing to let the wall down and let him do it? And I think, well, why don't we decide? So let's stand up and we're going to decide whether we want to do that or not. I've asked Rod to come back. 
He's just going to play a little bit of music while I draw things to a close. I just thought at this moment, we can't not respond to God through this psalm. And we can't not respond to God through what he's spoken to us in this morning as well either, which is, I want to strip you back. I want you to be real with me. I want you to give me whatever it is you're holding and exchange it for peace. I want you to know that whatever crisis you're facing, I can break into and bring change. And for many of you in this room, that's real. There are crises in your life. It doesn't have to be cancer. There are probably other crises that you're facing. And this is a moment where God just wants to meet you, speak to you, minister to you, give you an opportunity to say, oh, that's me, Lord. That is me, boy. I need you. I need the sovereign, authoritative power of God to break in in my situation. I need you. And this is a moment for us to pause in the presence of God and be real. Let that wall come down. Let it come down. Because God has asked us to let it come down and say, right, I'm stepping forward and I'm just going to have whatever God's got for me today. So let's just take a moment. There'll be some quiet. And then I'm going to invite anybody that wants to to come forward this morning, to come forward and say, yeah, that's me. And we're going to pray for you. And we're going to see what God does for you. And it's as simple as that. So a bit of quiet. Then I'll invite you to come forward. And then we'll pray in close.